I want to start by thanking you all for your leadership and support. You've rallied support against uh, some of Trump's most dangerous actions. His failure to contain the pandemic and the mass casualty event has caused in the black community. His embrace of white supremacy has been just straight out and continues. His attack on the ACA, which affects so many African-Americans. His, uh, his incitement of violence against peaceful social justice protesters removing diversity and inclusion awareness policies across the federal government. And you've successfully litigated voting rights cases while uh, the right to vote has been under more severe attack than any time since I was a kid. And you've helped ensure that Americans across the country uh, complete the census and are counted, which is a big deal, and an awful lot more. We have an enormous amount of work to do, not just to reverse Trump's actions, but to repair the damage that of four years of his policies. They've exacerbated and worsened every inequity from housing to education to the economy to being able to build back better. And I've made advancing racial equality priority throughout the campaign in our transition team, and I'm gonna make it a priority in our administration. And I know you all have, well, you, you just know you can have partners, two partners in the White House. And you have responsibility, I think, uh, that uh, in addition to that, to, push as hard as you can for the nominees we come forward that I think you're going to like. Understand that, and, uh, and I support all you've been pushing me to do as well. You're going to do your jobs, I know, and I'm going to do mine. And together, I think we're going to see progress happen. I understand you have a few policy and personnel proposals you want to discuss today. I welcome the input in the council. And uh, here, is what my transition team is doing to ensure that tracking racial inequity is part of every piece of work from policy to agency route to personnel to appointments to technology and to delivery. Uh, we've asked our agency review teams to look at opportunities to advance racial equity in the federal agencies. I just announced, by the way, the COVID team, and we have one whole, uh, we've set up a new department that requires it to look at racial equity in the way in which the COVID vaccine is in fact distributed. It's an important piece. It's across every aspect of our administration. And I view this as an essential part of taking responsibility for greater equity across the government. And we're talking, uh, we're talking to a lot of policy experts, including many of you I've talked to, and we're developing implementation plans to assess implications for racial equality and racial equity. We're applying anti-bias techniques as we recruit people for my administration and the ones we'll hire and those who will be second, third level folks as well. And I've asked Cedric to help me think through how to build on this work and make sure we're infused throughout my entire administration after holding listening sessions with experts like yourself. On personnel, I'm committed to administration. I've said this from the outset, that's gonna look like America and represent the country in a way that I said I would. And I'm proud of General Austin that I picked him to serve as Secretary of Defense. I hope you'll support his nomination and join me in celebrating this historic significance. So many African-Americans have died defending this country. It's the first time in American history we'll have an African-American heading up the Defense Department. Of the people I've announced already, the majority of the people are people of color and we're just getting started. I've only named 10 of the 20 cabinet level appointees, 
I'm confident by the end of the process, you'll see a talented cabinet that represents the diversity of this country. I know we have a lot to discuss, and I, I want to invite Kamala to add anything she'd like to say before we get started. But we're here to listen, and we're here to work with you. I promise you, you're going to have access to us throughout our administration. Kamala? Thank you. I Welcome. It's good to see everybody. It, the only thing would be better if we were together in person. Um, but thank you for everything you do every day. We have arrived at the, at the day we hoped, which is that after four years of dealing with what we have all been dealing with, um, we have new opportunities and to really um, follow through on a commitment to racial justice, social justice, equity, equality, fairness. Um, the work that we need to do as an administration cannot get done without your involvement, partnership, support, and influence. And so I say hello to all of the friends. Thank you for everything you have done and that the organizations you represent have done over all of these generations, because I would not be the vice president of the United States elect were it not for that work. So um, greetings and thank you. And we should get started because this is, this is the time for you to talk. Cedric, you yes. gonna start this or how are we doing this? Can't hear you, Cedric, you're on mute. This is what I'll do. I'll turn it over to uh, my former boss, Mark Moriel, and uh, he will give us the run of the show. But Mark, if, if I see that we're getting bogged down somewhere, I may have to jump in because I know Reverend Al is last and I don't want Reverend Al not to get his full time also. So hopefully we'll go straight through, but I don't want to make sure we don't use up too much time and deprive the last Thank guest. So with that, I'll turn it over to the chair and CEO of the National Urban League, Mark Morio. Cedric, a lot in common. We both we both work with him for him. Mark, you're on mute. Go ahead, Mark. I think you're on mute. Mark, you're muted. Yeah, Mr. I've, I've never President heard anybody elect. mute you before, Mark. I've never heard that happen ever. <laughs> uh, Mr. President-elect, uh, Madam Vice President-elect. First of all, that sounds so great to us. Let me just say congratulations to both of you on your historic. Uh, victory in this election for which uh, we worked so hard to turn out uh, a record vote in our community. Let me also just begin by uh, thanking you for Cedric Richmond, Cecilia Rouse, and General Austin, and Vice President-elect Harris particularly, uh, for your uh, courage and fortitude in selecting them for these very important positions. We intend to work closely with Cedric on an ongoing basis to make sure we hear you and you hear us. Uh, and uh, let me begin by telling you who we are. We are seven historic civil rights organization leaders. We do not come as individuals or personalities. We come as leaders of historic civil rights organizations, meaning we have been there or the roots of our organization go all the way back to the 1960s and prior to that. Uh, we are a group of equals. There is no one organization or any one of us who is the leader of the pack, the president of the group, or the chairman. We come as equals, bounded together by mission, uh, doing our work uh, in different ways, but with an intense focus on racial justice, with a particular emphasis on the African-American community for many of us. I want to uh, lift up your historic commitment to racial justice. 
uh, embodied in your campaign document, Lift Every Voice, and embodied in your statements, The Night of Your Victory, where racial justice was lifted up as one of your four pillars. Our job is to help you and to hold you and your administration accountable to accomplish the progress of racial justice. And those twin objectives, helping and holding you accountable is what we will use to guide uh, this relationship over the next four years. To accomplish this objective, you must maximize the number of African-Americans in the cabinet, sub-cabinet, and the White House staff so that people with the lived experiences of racial justice and the professional qualifications are at the big table in the deliberations and the discussions on all issues. We want to affirm that as Americans, every issue is an African-American issue. Some issues are of greater importance than others, but every issue is an African-American issue. I will say as I began, and then I'll be coming back later with some specific suggestions and accomplishments, specific, specific objection, that to accomplish the aims of racial justice, there must be, at the beginning, a commitment to address the racial wealth and economic gap that is so persistent and exists in this country and that Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect has gotten worse in the last 20 years and gotten worse in the, in the era of COVID. Our community is in crisis. This nation is in crisis. Our community is catching hell economically, catching hell from COVID. Uh, and I want to encourage you, uh, Mr. President-elect, to be bold, to be imaginative, to view this as the historic opportunity that it is for your administration. So number one, to accomplish uh, the aims of addressing the racial wealth gap, it will require uh, a set of targeted policies that focus on the communities that are deeply impacted. I wanna lift up your own plan, the Lift Every Voice plan. And I wanna encourage you uh, to ensure that from Secretary-designee Yellen to each member of the economic team, to every member of the staff economic team, that this document and this plan be a guiding document for everything you do in the next four years. Uh, your commitment to this plan was encouraging and all too often in an administration, people come in and they bypass the specific commitments that were made during the election. This plan, we think, should be the guidepost of your work when it comes to racial justice. I just want to say two more quick things. Uh, number one, with respect to the first 100 days, we will share with you uh, various thoughts about what should be in the first 100 days. I want to lift up the importance of a broad-based stimulus with money for cities, with money for African-American businesses with less than five employees, for education, for COVID distribution that uh, utilizes community centers 
and libraries and community facilities as distribution points. Uh, and I want to encourage on an economic recovery plan that uh, you think of infrastructure as not only transportation infrastructure, but as community facilities. We lost you, Mark. You're, you're muted, Mark. Mark, Turn you're me. muted. Uh, and the like. Where did you lose me? On infrastructure. On infrastructure. So we recommend that infrastructure be not only transportation infrastructure, Mr. President-elect and Madam Vice President-elect, but for schools, community centers, broadband, and other facilities such as water systems. Without that, a transportation infrastructure plan will not, will not achieve the aims of addressing the racial economic inequities in this country. If you get a chance uh, so, to read the plan, you'll see it does exactly that, what you're talking yes. about. And we appreciate that, and we want to emphasize that. So with that, uh, each of us is going to discuss uh, a set of issues, and I want to turn it over to my colleague, Derek Johnson, to provide some context. After that, we'll go to Melanie Campbell. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, President-elect and Vice President-elect. It is truly good to say that after... Uh, this uh, mo most tumultuous 2020 election cycle. Thanks for your help, uh, We have a huge opportunity. Uh, and I think the opportunity is capped with what Mark just mentioned. Uh, you've made some bold statements and promises and commitments during the campaign cycle. You've also made some very clarifying statements after it was obvious that you would, in fact, be president-elect. And taking the example from corporate America, when they actually embrace the opportunities of diversity, when they actually understand the importance of inc inclusion, uh, those who have been able to successfully pivot, they have empowered an individual to be a diversity and inclusion officer who will report directly to the president. Uh, this is a strong message that the, the, the message from the chief, it will germinate in, ter in terms of the reality of how people operate. And I want to encourage you to consider that as something uh, that this administration would be bold enough to do, to empower an individual who's responsible for carrying out some of the statements, some of the commitments that you have made to address racial opportunity and equality, as you stated when you first started off. And as NAACP, we touched over 18 million voters this election cycle in 12 targeted states. We, we had a specific focus on uh, areas like my hometown of Detroit and Milwaukee, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and other areas. And we are now in Georgia doing the exact same thing. But I would like to caution you in terms of the opportunity to get people, good people confirmed in the Senate. It would, re, it would result in the outcome of this Georgia election. And anything that could peel off any of the votes would be something that could be harmful to the outcome. If you consider the victory that you appreciated in Georgia, it was around 12,000 votes. And so as you consider appointments, you also must consider what impact would that have, have on voters in the state of Georgia. And I would submit to you that former Secretary Vilsack could have a disastrous impact on voters in Georgia. Shirley Sherrod is a civil rights legend, a hero. I live in the state of Mississippi. I'm surrounded by civil rights icon, and I understand the reverence that many of them have, particularly in rural areas. 
So I want to make sure that as you consider appointments, that you do so with November 5th in mind so that we don't miss an opportunity to be able to get confirmed some of the outstanding candidates that you're going to bring forward. If you decide to take that route, I strongly encourage you to reach out to Ms. Sherrod, have a conversation with her. I strongly encourage you to talk to Black farmers so that you have a clear understanding of the impact any decision can have on the January 5th election. It is our goal as NACP, it is our goal as civil rights community for this administration to be successful. And it can only be the, at the success we need it to be if we have the ability to get good people confirmed. I'm gonna round that off with what you started around this question of equity. A bold statement that you can see it early is to rename the Domestic Economic Council, the Domestic Economic and Equity Council charging them with the responsibility of tracking the spend and the dollars as it impacts many communities, not only African-American community, the Native American community, the Latino community, and other communities to show that there is in fact equity in how we are managing our economic policy. The same thing for OMB, rename it and give it a charge of equity, Office of Management, budget and equity so that we can track and manage and understand whether or not the commitments made during the campaign can truly be lived up to with this administration. We are cheering for your success. The work that Cedric Richmond has already begun to do to reach out and build is really important, but his skill set is so much broader than just the black community. We are really celebrating. Amos Brown mentioned it to me every time Vice President-elect uh, Harris, that she's a member of my church. And I don't know if you're a member or not, but you know, Amos don't claim anything that's successful that's in proximity of him. And we love Amos for that. He's right we really need it. a laser <laughs> sharp focus on your commitments because what get done is what get measured. What gets measured is what can be held accountable and accountability starts with making sure somebody is solely responsible on carrying out the charge of the commitments you made. Thank you for the opportunity. And I wanna make sure that your statement is ring true. We do have a responsibility as an advocacy organization to raise the questions as we hear it germinate from our members, to call out concerns as they exist. That's something that I will always do, but I wanna do it in a way in which we can always have a dialogue. And that dialogue should be towards solutions because my little piece of solution with your army of solutions, we can perhaps Get a solution that not only help the African-American community, but make democracy work for everyone. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Great. Melanie Campbell. Uh, thank you, Mark. Um, thank you, President-elect Biden and Vice-elect Harris. It just has a wonderful ring to it. A wonderful ring to it. Uh, but thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation with you all today. Um, and also thank you for earlier uh, 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 President-elect Biden for uh, meeting with me and several other black women when you were uh, deliber deliberating about who would be your uh, vice presidential running mate. And so I want to thank you for selecting uh, now VP-elect uh, Harris and for her selecting you as partners. Uh, and it has, uh, so we want to thank you for uh, the opportunities for us to make the case and that you all were awesome as a winning ticket. And we know you will be an awesome administration. So I thought I want to thank you on behalf of those black women, 
uh, like Cleola Brown and others, and many others of us who met with you earlier on when we sent you that letter. Also, we want to thank you on behalf of many, many Black women for the uh, selections you've already made for your administration um, when it comes to uh, cabinet as well as uh, other White House staff. Um, also, want to really encourage you uh, as you are selecting your uh, positions for statutory cabinet positions uh, that Black women are represented in those uh, positions and names that we all have heard and uh, we've also sent letters to for Congresswoman Marsha Fudge or Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms and Karen Bass and Susan Rice and others that uh, Black women who can bring the lived experience um, and expertise to the table and how important that is uh, as you round out your cabinet. I want to thank uh, you for selecting Cedric Richmond, who I've had the pleasure of knowing uh, from, from his role at Congressional Black Caucus and others, and know that we're looking forward to that relationship uh, as we move forward. I have a couple of things uh, from the National Coalition Black Women's Roundtable that we wanted to share. I want to first uh, uh, talk about COVID-19 um, and its impact. I am a survivor of COVID-19. I know. And Thank Congresswoman, uh, uh, thank uh, 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 VP uh, for calling me and for you all sending those flowers mm -hmm. uh, in September. Um, and the issue uh, around healthcare and uh, implicit bias, what happens. So when I was uh, first diagnosed the first week of September, um, I was checked into the hospital um, and a day later and I had uh, pneumonia. And I was sent home the next day with Tylenol and Mucinex. I was not giving room yesterday. I was not giving anything. I was sent home to figure it out. The very next day, I had I couldn't breathe. I had to take an ambulance, and I was in ICU for two weeks. Mm -hmm. I almost didn't make it, and I was in the hospital for a month. As we speak right now, I have a 70-year-old sister and a niece. I have seven family members in Atlanta who have COVID. They went to the hospital on Saturday. Mm. One of these had uh, uh, has a, a heart issue, had a bypass surgery this year. They went to the hospital on Saturday. They all, uh, four of them were uh, diagnosed in my sister's family circle. They were sent home the next day. Mm. I didn't understand that. On Sunday, my niece had me taken by ambulance back to the hospital. She was at home. Sunday, she's diagnosed with pneumonia. Mm. My sister, 70 years old, retired teacher, sent home. She had to get an ambulance yesterday, sent back. So the question that I think for the COVID task force is to look at what's happening with how people at, in the hospitals mm -hmm. are being uh, how these decisions are being made. We know that black and brown people are the ones who die most disproportionately. So when you go to the hospital for care and you sit home with Tylenol, as opposed to getting remdesivir, once I was uh, sent back to the hospital, I received remdesivir and all the other uh, cocktails and treatments. But by that time, I'm now in ICU. So I ask that as the task force looks at all the things that they have to look at, look closely at that situation. 
And I would like to offer my opportunity to be able to help in any way I can, because there's other things that happened while I was in the hospital. So some of the people who have, um, be, have been patients to be able to make sure that they're talking to folks and I'll offer myself up and, uh, in that regard. Um, the other issue around COVID, of course, is your task force as you will deal with, and I think someone mentioned it already about, I think Mark did about uh, how you deal with vaccines and uh, distribution. We know our community is going, um, has a lot of fear when it comes to vaccinations and things like that for very good reasons, and we know that history. And that community-based organizations are engaged in that process of the trusted leaders, uh, trusted organizations to make sure our communities um, uh, are not so afraid of actually taking this vaccine so we can save more lives. Um, lastly, I wanna focus on uh, your White House Council on Gender Equity as it's being formulated. I've worked very closely during the Obama administration with the White House Council on Women and Girls. I think it's very um, apropos for you to focus it on gender equity. Also believe you should look at it as a with a racial lens. I've uh, been engaged with um, some of the other women's organizations around that and I think it's very important that as was done in, the, in that prior administration that you have all of the departments have some element of that uh, representatives that participate in that. Um, lastly, what's happening as we speak around uh, the recovery pack uh, that does not include, unless something happened uh, since we've been talking, uh, paid family and medical leave. Yes, it uh, does. No, it does include. It does include paid family medical leave. Guaranteed. It doesn't have enough. Well, it has more than, I don't think you've read it. It has significant okay. yeah, commitment. I've been reading it. And I said something may have happened since the said sense, but no, it was 1.8 million <laughs> was going to take for the for three months, billion rather. But making sure that it's there and strong. I say it that way. Um, um, it's um, there. Like Biden. And that's very, very important. And that's coming from many of the women's organizations that I work with very closely. So those are some of those issues. Uh, and I want to respect uh, the time and hope I did not go over time with my colleagues to express some of the concerns we have from our organizations. Again, I'm uh, looking forward to working with you both and your whole team um, as we move forward to make, what I say, bring, back, bring it back better, make it better uh, together. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I'm going to speak next. Um, let me just extend uh, greetings. Uh, President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, uh, it is wonderful to have this time with you today uh, to talk about how we rebuild uh, and reconstruct our nation. And as a Black woman, I'm so thrilled, excited, and proud to see Vice President Harris in this seat. And looking forward to working closely with the both of you over the course of the next four to eight years to get our country back on track when it comes to racial injustice. Um, I'm going to focus very squarely on two issues uh, this afternoon, voting rights and federal civil rights enforcement. Um, first, uh, I want to underscore how important it would be uh, for both uh, you, President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris to work hand in glove with Congress to enact the John Lewis Voting Rights Advent Advancement Act. Um, as you know, restoring Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act is critical. Um, this would be 
a singular and historic and monumental accomplishment for your administration if we can get this bill to the finish line. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I want to ask that you consider issuing an executive order to create a national task force to examine challenges to our democracy, a national voter access commission. And the work of that commission would be to travel across the country, identify and propose new and innovative solutions to help protect our democracy and to ensure that our most vulnerable communities have voice in our democracy. The work of that commission could actually help to inform and develop a congressional record that can help make the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act passage possible. Um, but here's the other reason why I think this would be incredibly important and timely. Right now, we are seeing an onslaught of voter suppression efforts uh, across our country and attacks on democracy. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law has been working in close partnership with the NAACP and other organizations to fight back against the slew of post-election efforts that we have seen to disenfranchise voters across the country. And the reason why we have engaged in these cases is because so many of these cases target Black voters and voters of color in particular. These are cases that are Fortunately, it's being squarely rejected by the courts, but we're deeply, deeply concerned because we know that once the dust settles on this litigation, that, that there are states actively preparing to work to reverse many of the gains made to promote access to the ballot during the pandemic. So there's state, legislator, le state legislatures that are poised to roll back access to absentee ballots. Uh, et cetera. So the, the, the timing, the launch of this commission, I think can be a powerful uh, counteractive measure to the, the kind of slew of voter suppression efforts that we know await us uh, in 2021 and beyond. I also want to talk about how critical it is to not just restore the Civil Rights Division, but to put the voting section of that division back in big business swiftly. Uh, and I want to single out the voting section for a few reasons. One, we've seen no enforcement of the Voting Rights Act for four years. Mm -hmm. Two, we are about to go into the first redistricting cycle in decades where we may be without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act, right? And that will have implications at every level of democracy in our country. But three, we need strong leadership that can help, with, help deal with some very live issues that we're up against right now. As you both know, the Supreme Court dealt uh, a huge blow to the Voting Rights Act with the 2013 Shelby County decision. That decision, brought to a grinding halt, the Section 5 preclearance provision. Mm -hmm. But what we have left is the Section 2 provision of the Voting Rights Act, which applies nationally and is a tool that all of us use every day to beat back voter suppression efforts. Right mm -hmm. now, before the United States Supreme Court, is a case that seeks to weaken Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The Justice Department just yesterday filed a devastating brief that sides with the petitioners who are seeking to cut out this critical 
uh, provision of the act. Briefs are due in this case from respondents on January 20th. We'll be filing a brief to stand up to save the Voting Rights Act in that case. But that afternoon, after you are sworn in, we're gonna need strong leadership that can move before the stroke of midnight to signal to the Supreme Court that the Justice Department may be revisiting its position in this incredibly important case. We cannot afford to live in a world in which both Section 5 and Section 2 of our nation's most important federal civil rights law have been, have been weakened by the Supreme Court. So there's going to be work to do on, on the very day in which you are sworn into office. And so strong leadership that can ensure that we're able to get back in business and deal with some of these live threats and issues is incredibly important. I want to um, close by talking about how important it is that we revive civil rights enforcement, not just in the Civil Rights Division, but across all of our federal agencies, HUD, the Department of Education, the Department of Labor, and more. And here's my final ask. I'd like to ask President-elect Biden that you consider to include among the first memoranda that you issue uh, one that speaks to the heads of government agencies and underscores the importance of directing those agencies to use all lawful means to recruit and hire diverse political staff within their agencies, both to honor the commitment that you've made to assembling a diverse team within this administration, but to also help create a larger pipeline of qualified and experienced diverse political staff who can move up to higher level positions during this and subsequent uh, democratic administrations. Agency heads will be scrambling and are scrambling right now to fill mid and lower level political slots during, and we know that that work will con uh, continue in the first uh, few months, but it's imperative that the White House formally and publicly emphasize to agency heads the importance of racial, ethnic, and gender diversity uh, in this administration and make clear your expectation that agency heads will do everything that is necessary to dissemble diverse teams from top to bottom uh, across our federal government. Uh, so that kind of memorandum issued very early on, I think will be the strong medicine and strong message needed to help ensure that we breathe life into that promise. Okay. I am looking thank forward you. to engaging with the both of you in the road ahead. All right, thank you, Kristen. And we'll go to Benita, Sherilyn, and then Reverend Al uh, to try to make up some time and then Derek and I will come back with any quick close. So go ahead, Benita. Thank you, uh, President-elect, hey, Vice right. President. Elect, uh, it is, I have to just say, I am just personally deeply moved in this moment. Uh, as you know, um, we have all been collectively fighting for the soul of our nation for the last four years. And now to be here before you in a moment to rebuild our country, to have the kind of country we deserve is such an incredible moment of hope. And too, there's been too little of that the last four years. So thank you. And we were honored to be able to push for pro-civil rights administration from the bottom of my heart. Um, so I am president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. We are today a coalition of over 220 civil and human rights organizations driving a national policy agenda. I came to this position 
after serving for just under two and a half years as head of the Civil Rights Division uh, in the prior Obama administration, uh, in preparation for the Biden-Harris transition, the Leadership Conference has created a set of a comprehensive list of priority initiatives to begin the task of repairing the devastation from the Trump era and to chart a new course that not only strengthens our democracy, but really moves us beyond the status quo to address the root causes of racial inequity in this country. And we've been working very closely with your transition, with the agency review teams on everything from the census to criminal justice reform, immigration, housing, and the like. We've got day one priorities and 100 days priorities to really help make sure that we don't lose a moment. I wanna speak very quickly about a few specific points. Uh, as, as you know, and as my colleague Kristen just said, the work of the Justice Department and federal civil rights enforcement, frankly, has never been more important for this country. And I understand acutely how it transforms America, how it affects real people in real communities. It has been gutted as an institution, but we need an attorney general who is going to lead this agency who has a demonstrated commitment to and experience in civil rights and criminal justice and police reform. Somebody who I think needs to know the department well, who can pick up from where the Obama-Biden administration left off and then go bolder. There is so much to restore. Uh, they literally, the Trump administration, undid everything pro-civil rights about uh, the Justice Department's work. And we need a new attorney general that's going to be able to step in day one, rapidly restore everything that was broken, uh, and then go much bolder on civil rights and criminal justice reform. Our communities are, have fought for this. That is something that your administration represents. I was a member of the Biden Standards Unity Task Force with Attorney General Holder on criminal justice reform. I think it's a really robust platform and agenda on these issues but we absolutely need an attorney general who's got credibility across all of these communities uh, and who can understand the levers of power for our justice department. And I can guarantee you with that type of nominee, we will fight, uh, fight for her. So I also wanna e echo something about voting. Uh, it took an unprecedented amount of litigation, organizing and mobilization from all of our groups and so many more to ensure expanded voting rights amid this pandemic and to fight pervasive ongoing disinformation by Trump and many others. And so we hope that we understand the Senate, uh, the makeup of the Senate and how much rides on it in, in the Georgia runoffs. We hope you will continue to uplift HR 1, the For the People Act and HR 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They passed the House of Representatives. They would have addressed a whole myriad of problems that we had to fight for in this election. We cannot allow that to happen again. Uh, and we need a Justice Department that is going to do everything it can to fight for voting rights uh, in your administration. I also want to very quickly talk, say something about the courts, which is we have seen a devastating whitening of the bench. Uh, federal judges affect every part of our lives and it will, they will affect every part of your agenda. Uh, and in the four years that Trump has had, he has transformed 25% of the federal judiciary. We now have to re-desegregate the Seventh Circuit. There hasn't been a single African-American circuit court nominee in this entire Trump administration. We have a pipeline of highly qualified nominees who can restore the rule of law and civil rights protections. Uh, but this is going to be a core area of focus that we know with all of the juggling priorities can get lost and yet, it undergirds everything that we care about. And lastly, I will just say that all of our organizations work tremendously hard to get out the census count. It was against some of the most formidable anti 
uh, uh, some of the most formidable racist forces, quite honestly, from the administration. We are still fighting to make sure that we can have a fair and accurate count because of the consequences that will last 10 years for our country. But I will also say that one of the things that was so encouraging about the infrastructure that we built to get a fair and accurate count is I believe that that infrastructure can help with vaccine distribution to reach the hardest to count communities, communities that have long been very distrustful of the government and of, um, of concerns for, for very important historic reasons. And so I want to offer that as an idea to explore uh, as our organizations have deep roots in these communities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, uh, Mr. President-elect and Vice President-elect. Um, this is just such an incredible honor. Uh, I am the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, with, which is a nonpartisan 501c3 organization, but I was raised in an obsessively political family. I believe I have watched every political convention, Republican and Democrat, since 1972. And um, I have to tell you that I am invoking the spirit of my father in this moment who taught me to be so politically focused. And he would have been absolutely blown away that I'm sitting here in this moment talking to you both. Uh, I haven't had an opportunity to congratulate you before this moment. And so I wanna use this moment to just congratulate you on this historic win, this important win that truly has pulled us back from the precipice of our failing democracy. Because we have such a short time left, I'm not going to repeat any of the things that my colleagues talked about, and I want to focus on just a couple of things. The first thing, Mr. President-elect, is that you have the opportunity in this moment to reset what has been a corrosive and dangerous tone and message about race in the United States. And that means that we need your policies, but we also need your voice. It's going to be important, for example, that one of your first actions is a reversal of the executive order that President Trump promulgated that essentially seeks to gag conversations about diversity, race, and history uh, among anyone who um, contracts with the federal government. Uh, the Legal Defense Fund and my organization filed suit. We represent the National Urban League in challenging uh, that, uh, that, that executive order. Already it's having an effect on so many who feel silenced in this period and who feel fearful of talking about race. And so when you reverse that executive order, and I know that you will, it's gonna be important for you also to articulate why you are reversing that executive order, to demonstrate and to, to talk about how much this administration welcomes the opportunity to talk about race and indeed encourages Americans to grapple with the difficult issues of our racial history and of racial injustice and lingering discrimination. But I really wanna focus on just a couple of things. I think most of what has been said about voting needs to be said. I just wanna add one thing. So LDF is a civil rights litigating organization and we have been on the ground every year in elections. And I can tell you that I first joined the Legal Defense Fund as a young lawyer in 1988. I hate dating myself like this, but this is a close to the press call and so I'm gonna do it. Uh, and so I have been working on voting rights issues for a very long time, uh, 30 years. And I have never seen the level of voter intimidation that we saw in this election. And so when we talk about activating the Department of Justice, when we talk about section two of the Voting Rights Act, that's all very important, but we're seeing something we have never seen in most of our lifetimes which is active and aggressive physical voter intimidation exactly right. that harkens back to the 1960s. 
we filed a suit under Section 11B of the Voting Rights Act against the current president, Mr. Trump, for his efforts to threaten and coerce officials in Michigan to try and change their vote and disenfranchise the votes of black voters uh, in Detroit. I, I don't think we have ever filed an 11B action under the Voting Rights Act in the years that I have been litigating in this space. So it's gonna be important to have an aggressive Justice Department engaged around voting, not just in the ways that we did before in the, in the 90s and in the early aughts, but we're gonna to have to look back at some of the old ways that we had to address voter intimidation. And this again requires your voice. People need to understand that this is anti-democratic, that when they threatened the Secretary of State of Michigan, when they threatened the Attorney General of Michigan, when they threatened the Governor of Michigan, that these are anti-democratic acts, and particularly when they're involved with the issue of voting. I'm glad that Benita mentioned HR1. To be honest with you, HR4 is not enough anymore. Pre-clearance is not enough. We now need to really address voting in a way that broadens our democracy. We, we need to return voting to formerly incarcerated persons in federal elections. We need to have election day be a national holiday. We need to make sure that states are fully funded and fully protected in their security apparatus for their election systems. We need to be more ambitious than we have ever been before in this space and you can do it. So I wanna talk about policing and criminal justice, which is so important to our communities. Uh, and this is a, a set of issues that are very, very volatile and have to be handled carefully. Some of these issues can be handled, we believe, by legislation. Of course, we don't know what will happen in the Senate races in Georgia. And so it's hard to say. We have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which everyone on this, this call among our groups worked on and that we think is so important. It's not clear that we have the votes for it, but you know, President-elect, that politics is not about simply saying there are this many Democrats and this many Republicans. The president has power. He has the bully pulpit. He has moral authority. And so we would ask you to lend your voice and your strength and your influence and your power and your ability to reach across the aisle to try and pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. But failing that, we would ask you to pull from that act measures that can be enacted by executive order. You have the power to call for a national database on police misconduct. You have the power to ask for a registry that will allow people to easily search in public um, a multiple misconduct complaints against particular officers. Um, you have the ability to uh, impose a, a database around police killings and police shootings. We know everything that happens to police officers because the FBI keeps a database, but we rely on the Washington Post to tell us how many people have been shot and killed by the police and what the racial breakdown is uh, of those statistics. We need good data so that we can understand what is really happening around policing. And these are things that you can do by executive order. Most important and most overarching, Mr. President-elect, is the power that you have, and in fact, the obligation that you have under one of the most important civil rights statutes, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prevents the federal government from providing funding to any program that engages in discrimination. It was used originally and in fact enacted to compel school districts to comply with desegregation orders, recalcitrant school districts. But, that, but Title VI applies across the board to every program. 
It makes sense, right? The federal government should not be funding programs engaged in discrimination, but it has never been enforced against law enforcement. And I would ask that you would articulate clearly the indication, the, the, the intention of this administration to apply Title VI to every program. If you are a state or local program and you engage in discrimination, you cannot receive federal funds. What that means is that there needs to be created a, a kind of protocol for Title VI. And you could do this very easily for law enforcement. What do your diversity numbers look like? What are your stop and arrest numbers look like by race? What do your shooting numbers look like by race? Do you have implicit bias training? What have you done to remove white supremacists from your police departments? These are actions that you can take that indeed I would suggest you are compelled to take by Title VI, which requires the federal government to ensure that their programs, their money does not support programs uh, that engage in discrimination. Finally, I wanna say something about um, prisons, which I know has not come up. Um, we know that the Department of Justice has the power to address issues of policing through pattern and practice investigations. I wanna encourage you to add prisons to that as well. I wanna inform you, Mr. President-elect, Vice President-elect, that there is a prison tragedy that is unfolding because of COVID. We will find out about it more in the coming six months. I encourage you to use your power to order an investigation of state and local prisons and jails to find out precisely what is happening. And you have that power through the Department of Justice. And that brings me to the Department of Justice, which is one of the principal ways through which you'll be able to execute criminal justice reform. It is vitally important. And that means the leadership of the Department of Justice, the Attorney General is critical. I've been reading all of the names in the press and so forth. I don't know what's true and what's not. I can only tell you this, that I believe that this appointment of the Attorney General is vitally important, that it must be someone that has the confidence of the civil rights community, that it must be someone that in my view is familiar with the main justice building precisely because of what has happened at the Justice Department over the past four years. This person needs to be able to look in every nook and cranny, to be able to lift up every sheet and know what's happening and to be able to move on day one. You started out saying we have a lot of work to do. This isn't just about repair and backfill. This is about creating an aggressive program. And we need someone with a track record on criminal justice reform, someone who knows about criminal justice reform and who has engaged in that process. This is vitally important to our community because we have to be able to move on day one. And the last thing I'll say is about judges. Benita already talked about the importance of racial diversity uh, on the bench. I wanna talk about the importance of background diversity on the bench. Our federal courts have largely been turned over to former prosecutors. In order to become a federal judge, you essentially have to be a former prosecutor, local prosecutor, US attorney. And that has cascaded up through those who are nominated for judicial positions, including the United States Supreme Court. That is an imbalance in our justice system. So much of our justice system is about defense. You are a former public defender, uh, Mr. President-elect, and so you know whereof I speak. The things we are most proud of in our justice system are those that are associated with the rights of defendants. And so I would ask that as you are looking to fill these positions that you also begin to reverse this uh, prosecutor myopia for our federal bench and begin to look at former civil rights lawyers. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, who founded our organization, was nominated to the Second Circuit in 1961. And I'm not sure he could be nominated today to the circuit court because of what has become a bias against civil rights lawyers and, uh, and, and public defenders. 
So I would ask as you think about judicial nominations that you can consider the full panoply of diversity, not just racial diversity, but uh, diversity of background. And that as you look at justice issues in your administration, that you look not just at the Supreme Court, but that you expand to look across the entire judiciary and think through how we can strengthen our justice system to give voice to people who rely on it to have their rights vindicated. Thank you so much for this opportunity and I'll stop there. Reverend Sharpton. Uh, yeah. No, I was gonna to go to Reverend Sharpton. Go ahead, Fred. Uh, first, let me uh, uh, thank uh, you for the meeting. I, I, I've spoken to both of you since the election and congratulated And let me also uh, uh, say that I congratulate uh, the uh, wisdom of having Cedric Richmond, who uh, is, uh, I feel, a great choice for where he is. Uh, in the years I've been out here, he's one of the few that has earned a lot of trust. And uh, I've known you, Mr. President-elect, for decades now, and I've known uh, uh, you, uh, Vice President-elect, uh, almost as long, you're not as old as uh, he and I, so not as long. And uh, you know, I trust very few people in Washington, but Cedric is among them. Uh, let me start with where we are. The fact of the matter is that this, today, we are in a situation uh, where for four years, Black America has been under siege. So in many ways, you are going to, as an administration, going to have to first dig us out of the racist mess that we've had to tolerate, deal with, and been subjected to because of your predecessor and then also build on from there. And we can't take that lightly. In the area of policing, as you both know, uh, we've had this year so many cases, one right after another. On August 28th, uh, we had uh, over 200, 208,000 to be exact people in Washington around policing and voting rights. In fact, uh, Vice President uh, uh, Harris was kind enough to have a video play there. People came in a pandemic, that's how outraged they are, about in a matter of a month, seeing one man with a knee on his neck kill another person shot in the back in a Wendy's in, in Atlanta, a young lady killed in her own house in Louisville, Kentucky, all of this in a month in a pandemic. And the president of the United States at that time did nothing. He went to Kenosha when a kid was shot and met with law enforcement and left. It is needed that we have a presidency that supports policing and supports proper policing and understand that victims are not looking for favors, they're looking for the law to be upheld. And we need, in saying that, an attorney general that will deal with the, the consent decrees that this administration immediately suspended, that will deal with having an empowered uh, U.S. attorneys that will seriously look at these cases. And that will at the same time enforce the law equally and evenly uh, uh, in all quarters. Now, I was one that said to you, President-elect, that I wanted to see a black woman as vice president. You said, I hear you out. And uh, you ultimately came there. I had nothing to do with it, but I said that. So I will say to you, I prefer a black attorney general. I would uh, say the least, though, is we should have an attorney general that has a proven civil rights record. On-the-job training on civil rights will not do it this time. 
We need somebody that can establish that they've dealt with civil rights issues and they know what they're doing because we're in an era that we've not been in before with the pandemic and these huge amount of cases one right after another. I will never forget, I told a reporter today, that I will never forget that when we brought the body of George Floyd from Minneapolis and Nash Action Network and I facilitated the families, got our supporters to help them, and we sat there in Houston, Texas. How you and your wife, Mr. President-elect, flew to Houston and met with that family and said to them, we just did not want to disrupt the funeral. And they'll never forget that. But the thing that got me that I told this reporter is you told his daughter, George Floyd's daughter, you took her little hand because you said, I heard you say that your father will change the world. Well, I want to be able to tell that daughter, the man that told you that did not mean that to get votes. He meant that because he's gonna help change our world. Cause we've been living in a world that every day the phone rings. All of us hope it's not another killing because the president of the United States right now has made it clear any victim is not a victim. Okay. To keep that commitment to that little girl. We also need to deal with the voting rights that has been robbed that even now they're trying to suppress all over this country. Uh, and clearly, I remember you and I sat next to each other on the pulpit at, at the uh, uh, church in, uh, in Southern Alabama just this past March in which uh, we talked about voting rights. We talked about John Lewis. John Lewis, that was the last time he was on that bridge alone. We have had the watering down of voting and now it has ushered in this whole hysteria where we have a president that's made a mockery of voting. We need an attorney general that will clearly deal with protecting voting rights, not as some privilege as I sat in the courtroom and heard Scalia say from the bench that this voting right sounds like a racial indictment, but it is a right and it is a right dipped in the blood of our people. Let me say that we should not, as you look to your appointees that are left, we should not let them submit us to a double standard, whether they be on the left or the right, uh, because many of us are not intimidated by either side. A lot of people call themselves uh, that call themselves progressive or progressive about everything but race. All of a sudden, when blacks start making money as lobbyists, they're against that, they're against this. They do not necessarily speak for us. What I'm saying is that when you have progressives that will question your nomination, your nominee for uh, the defense uh, department, making history, and he may, he will need a waiver. Well, it will look very strange to many of us that two white guys can get a waiver, but the black nominee couldn't. It would look very strange to us that we can see people that we're hearing are up for attorney general, but the black guys, if it's, if it's a Tony West, well, it may be nepotism. If it's a, a DeVal Patrick, well, we don't know. At least make sure we are equally considered in the running. And I think that it is important, it is imperative, and I know you. I think I saw a commercial, I know Joe, I know you. I sat next to you eight years in every, just about every civil rights meeting Barack Obama had, and you pushed him. And you're right, it's our job to push you. And you sat there, you were there. I sat next to you 
when Obama sat there with young activists, as I hope you will, with Patrice Cullors and others, and listened to them and we started this commission on policing. It's almost forgotten history now because a lot of that body cameras and all are, are, are almost something that you can put in a museum because they're turned on and turned off when they want. You were part of making that happen. That's why I think that it is totally ridiculous for anyone to think that we could put a Rahm Emanuel who covered up Laquan McDonald's killing as mayor in any position without our raising from the civil rights community that this man did something that in our opinion was just absolutely uh, unpardonable. So uh, as, as you know me and I know you and I know you, uh, uh, Vice President Lake, I will never embarrass you. I never in eight years, even when I disagreed with President Obama, Nash Action Network, you both have been there, spoke for us several times. We will not embarrass you, but we will never lie to you. And we will never tell you that things are going certain ways that they're not going. As I said that day in Selma, Mr. Vice President-elect, that we are not looking for better slave masters, we're looking for freedom. And you stood up and said, I'm right. I was directing it at, a, as a, at an opponent of yours because some people think they can come in at the last minute, say they're progressive, throw their fists in there, and we are conned by that. So I'm very happy that you're there. I'm happy that Ms. Uh, Kamala Harris is there, Senator Harris, now Vice President-elect, not because of your stellar records, not because of your positions, but I've seen you hold George Floyd's daughter's hand. And I've seen you, uh, Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris, hold Eric Garner's mother's hand. That's the kind of President-elect and Vice President-elect that we need to turn that compassion into some concrete legislation and the policies that we need so we're not just holding hands, but we're moving forward. And we want to move forward together. And we want to not, maybe not always agree, but be able to walk out with a common agenda that all of us can live with and make life better for everybody. So I thank you for this meeting. I thank all my colleagues that uh, joined in asking for this meeting. And uh, I, I'm sorry if I was a little more candid, but you would have thought I was a clone if I didn't do Al Shout. Look, Mark, let me just, Mark, let me uh, update you where we are in time. We probably have a couple of minutes. I really wanted to- Let's go to the president and the president, uh, vice president. I, I, I want to go to the president, president-elect, but I know Derek told me he had one thing that he, he wanted to get out. Derek, if you can do that quickly, we can go to the president and vice president-elect to close us out. Derek, you're muted. You're muted, Derek. I'm there. President-elect, you've mentioned more than once how the black vote saved you in your races in the Senate in Delaware. You've talked about your friendship with Mouse. We are now saying the black community have stood up in this election cycle. Let's not suffocate the black vote in Georgia and make sure we send the right message because the success of this administration will be the ability of the Senate to confirm your nominees. We have an opportunity here. We want to make sure we seize upon this opportunity and allowing for the input necessary, 10 more appointments to go. A lot of people in our community are getting a little anxious because they are not seeing enough of the progress they thought they would have seen at this point. Let's not disappoint them and let's not get to a place where voters in Georgia begin to second guess. Okay, let me respond. I, I, I've got I to go. Let me respond. There's a lot to respond to here. Let's get something straight. 
you shouldn't be disappointed. What I've done so far is more than anybody else has done this far. Okay, number one. Number two, I mean what I say when I say it. I mean what I say when I say it. I'm the only person who's ever run on three platforms that I was told could not possibly win the election. And I never ceased from it. One was on restoring the soul of this country because of what I saw happen in Charlottesville. That was it. No one else was talking about it. The words of presidents matter. Nobody else, no progressive was talking about it. I did. My son, Bo, used to have an expression. He'd say, remember dad, remember dad, home base. It ain't worth the job if I can't say what I believe. I didn't want to run this time. I ran this time because of the racist son of a gun who was president of the United States of America. That's why I ran. And you'll remember, a lot of you told me talking about the soul of America was going over people's heads. They didn't know what we're talking about. The words of a president matter. What a president says matters. And you've never seen me shy away. In the middle of the debate, I called him a racist. In the middle of the debate with him, I took on white supremacists. I'm the guy that took on every single time somebody was threatened in this country. The only white boy you know who did it, period, out there, every single time. So look, all I'm saying here is, guys and ladies, we're on the same exact page, the same exact page. We talked about closing the, 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 the racial wealth gap. That's the single biggest thing I want to get done. It's the ultimate equalizer no matter what else happens, because I plan on spending over $15 billion to provide for opportunity for young black entrepreneurs to get them off the ground, black farmers to be able to own their own property, young people being able to get their first 15,000 bucks down payment on a home, making sure that they have an opportunity to gain wealth. We can do all the rest of this unless the black community is able to make up the wealth gap, in my humble opinion, is real trouble. I support same-day registration. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years as a United States Senator. Before, Sherilyn, you were even involved. I got in, I started off, I'm much older than you. That's why I got involved in politics. The assault on the black vote and voting rights across the nation has never been more ugly than it is today. You got to go all the way back to the original Jim Crow to get where this guy is. If in case you haven't looked, we have the largest voting right. Kristen, my operation, 1,000 lawyers, bigger than you or anybody else out there on voting rights. 1,000 in this campaign. Not a joke. 1,000. So I want you to know, I understand this. I know, look at the 38 cases that have been brought against my being president of the United States, all about phony, phony actions. And so I think there should be same day registration, automatic voting rights. I've been pushing and I got a number of people that contribute significantly to the effort down in Florida to make sure that uh, uh, that federal uh, um, prisoners who serve prisoners who serve their time have every single right restored to them. That's been my position before it was anybody else's position. I've been out pushing that. In addition to that, I think it's really important that no one 
goes to prison for a drug offense. Nobody. They go into rehabilitation. Rehabilitation. That's what we should be building rehabilitation centers, not more prisons. I have a I have a $20 billion effort that I'm proposing to get states to change their sentencing guidelines so that there is no more mandatory sentences across the board. In addition to that, we're talking about having diversity hiring in every agency. I promise you that is going to happen. We're just getting started here. Police reform, judicial reform. Look, you know, when I was, if you notice, when I was chairman of the Judiciary Committee and when I was advising the president, who did we get on the court? We got on a woman who worked for me, became a member of the Supreme Court. Another woman who was a leading Hispanic in America, no one paid attention to, is on the court. All the people that I pushed on the court have been, have been really pro-civil rights judges across the board. And I like you. The idea, Kristen, that we have to, everybody has to be a prosecutor. I'm a public defender. When I'm president of the United States of America, we're going to see to it that public defenders, federal defenders, get paid the same as federal prosecutors. Mm -hmm. So we can attract people. There's a whole range of things I guess I'm trying to say here. Look, the whole idea of, <coughs> of, of equity is built into everything we've done. For example, I laid out the, my, my COVID team. Nobody's ever done this before. We're going to have Marcella Nunez-Smith. But, yeah, you know, she is going to have one job. We have an equity task force. Her entire job is to deal with the inequity that exists because of racial discrimination. And, Ms. Campbell, that's what this is all about, making sure that. You may remember, I'm the first person, black or white, who called attention to the fact that you were finding that there was the, the rate of people who were African-Americans were dying was three times that of, of, of white people. That's because a friend of mine, a white guy who happens to be, as you well know, Derek, the mayor of the city of Detroit, called me to tell me about it. I insisted that we keep a record on everything that happened since then. Guys, guess what I'm saying, guys, is, you know, I mean what I say. The hard part here is I'm going to have a lot of trouble. We're going to have a lot of trouble getting a lot of this done with this Congress. And so the question is, for example, you know, I'm going to be appointing at least, and I'm, you know, look, the reason I'm not telling you who the other black maybe cabinet positions I'm going to appoint are is because it will get out. And guess what? I can't defend them. They're going to be out there by themselves without any defense before their name. They're going to get ripped to shreds. That's why I'm going to wait. You will be pleased, I believe. You will be pleased to see major, there'll be more African-Americans in major positions within a cabinet in major spots and more Hispanics in major spots than ever in American history. That's going to happen. I promise you that. And the other thing is, for example, thus far, you know, for example, when we went ahead and we made sure that, you know, I have as, uh, you know, uh, um, the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen, but at number two, is Wally Adiermo, an African-American, who is the number two guy with real authority at that department. Look underneath just what we're doing in, in, in addition to the people we've already named. You're going to see people. Look, and, you know, Cecilia Rouse, Cece, she is a significant player. That's a serious position. But it's like when I name her, well, I don't know if that counts. I'm not so sure. 
Well, if it doesn't count for y'all, well, the hell with y'all. But because it's real, it's real. So all I'm saying is look at us, judge us based on what we do. You're going to see more coming your way. And not only that, within the White House as well. Cedric is the best. Cedric's been with me from the beginning. And Cedric is going to be overseeing a great deal of this and not all, all his responsibility, but he's in every single meeting. He's an assistant to the president. He's in every single meeting in the White House, period, period, period. And so what we're going to be doing here is making sure that we have diverse hiring, not only and for the main cabinet position and the sub-cabinet positions, but down the line, down the line. It's going to make a big difference. And within the White House as well, assistance to the president, there's only six of those slots. It matters. And by the way, I think you're going to see, I always kid Kamala by say this, but we're, we're going to have more women than men, as it's looking like now. Okay, that's good, because I'm surrounded by women smarter than me, starting off with my wife and my sister. But all kidding aside, this is going to be fully, fully, fully across the board. I'm going to keep the commitment that I said. And here's the thing. And Al, Reverend Al, I think you're right about this. It matters what a president says. And if you notice, I am not mincing my words when I speak about what I plan on doing as president of the United States. The only thing I'm not doing is I'm not engaging in retribution. I am not deciding that the way to win is to go after hate with hate. We have to convince people. We have to move them, move them. And one of the overwhelming reasons I won, by the way, is because we took on racism in suburbia. White women, white women overwhelmingly voted with me, and black women were the two places where it was overwhelming because we spoke to those concerns. And Vanita, you know what I'm talking about. You and I have talked before. I don't carry around a stamp on my head saying progressive and I'm AOC, but I have a more of a record of getting things done in the United States Congress than anybody you know, anybody you know of getting things accomplished. And that sounds so self-serving. I know that, but this is gonna really be hard. This is going to really, really, really be hard. And let me conclude and turn it over to Kamala, who says, what the hell am I doing with this guy right now? But all kidding aside, I've known you my whole life, most of you. I've worked with you my whole life, most of you. I've been around doing this for a long, long time. I don't always get it right, but I always take responsibility. When I get it wrong, I acknowledge I got it wrong. But my overarching objective, if we cannot, make significant progress on racial equity. This country is doomed. It is doomed, not just because of African-Americans, but because by 2040, this country is going to be minority white European. Hear me? Minority white European. And you guys are going to have to start working more with Hispanics who make up a larger portion of the population, y'all do, in terms of raw numbers. We're going to have to be working with a whole group of people that, in fact, are the single most diverse democracy in American history.
and anywhere in the world. And we got to figure out how to unify this country. And you've been the leaders of being able to do that. Not a joke. And so there's some things that I'm going to be able to do by executive order. I'm not going to hesitate to do it. But what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to do what used to, Vanita, you probably used to get angry with me during the debates when you'd have some of the people you were supporting said, on day one, I'm going to executive order to do this. Not within the constitutional authority. I am not going to violate the Constitution. Executive authority that my progressive friends talk about is way beyond the bounds. And as a, a, one of you said, maybe you, Reverend now, well, whether it's far left or far right, there is a Constitution. It's our only hope, our only hope. And the way to deal with it is where I have executive authority, I will use it to undo every single damn thing this guy has done by executive authority. But I'm not going to ex exercise executive authority where it's questioned, where I can come along and say, I can do away with assault weapons. There's no executive authority to do any of that. And no one's fought harder to get rid of assault weapons than me. Me. But you can't do it by executive order. If you do that, next guy comes along and says, well, guess what? By executive order, I'm going to say everybody can own machine guns again. So we got to be careful. I know you all know this. I know you know it. I, and poor Kamala's heard me say this, and so has Cedric. I used to have a friend named Bob Gold, who was a really bright guy, not much of it. We went to school together. He wasn't an academic whiz, but bright as hell. And as he grew, he became very successful. And I look at him, he died of a heart transplant. And about 30 years, 20 years ago, I said to him, Bob, do you understand what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you understand me? He looked at me and said, Joe, I not only understand you, I overstand you. I'm sure you overstand me here. I desperately want to work with each of you. And I promise you, you will have access to us on a regular basis. And any emergency, you'll have access to us. We got to figure out a way how to regularly see to it. We can do it as a group like we're doing now. Yeah. I'm going to have to have an opportunity to be able to answer, go down and answer your questions. And let me just say two more things. I like HR 1 and I like HR 4. But let me tell you something. We're going to have a hell of a hard time getting that passed through a Republican Senate. So the question is, what can we do in the meantime? I'm going to push him. I'm going to push them. And by the way, you know, the whole idea of gag conversations, that ends in my administration. There's no possibility you'll hear me talking about that. There's no possibility. But in what we're going to talk about is formally how we go about changing police misconduct, exposing it, keeping the records, the things I wanted to talk about with, uh, with um, uh, you, you uh, Ms. Campbell, were the whole idea of this task force and how we're going to deal with, you're going to see there's going to be at least two more major African-American women who are going to be appointed to this, uh, this uh, um, uh, group that we're talking about in major positions in the White House and in the administration. You're also going to see that we're going to appoint and I guess, so let me conclude with this, because I'm, I'm going to get in real trouble here in terms of my time. You know, um, I promise you, there will be an AG who has a significant record 
on dealing with civil rights. That's a guarantee. And each of the departments, you will see that as well. We need you did a hell of a job in the civil rights division. I, I, I really mean it. But you will see that is critical. And I think it matters how we start off. I've, again, I, I'll conclude by saying one of the things I learned early on was that if in order to get things done in the Congress or the Senate, I start off by always going after my opponent's motive. I'm never going to get anything done. When I talk about dealing with the whole notion of what we're going to do in terms of infrastructure, I'm talking about it across the board. I'm not talking about just building highways. I'm talking to making sure that we have safe water. I'm, I'm going to make sure we have clean water. I'm going to make sure that we can breathe the clean air. I'm going to make you realize all the folks who are getting clobbered by climate are all fence line communities, which you all come from, the black community, the poor community. They're the ones who are dying overwhelmingly as a consequence of the impacts of climate change. They're the ones who are going to get first relief in my climate policies. Climate's about equity. It's not just about being able to breathe clean air. It's about equity. And we're going to build back in a way that we're going to create significant jobs for folks that, in fact, represent minority communities. Badly needed. And so I wish I had more time. Maybe we can have another one of these meetings before we actually get sworn in or in that area to go into. Or maybe I respond to you in writing on a number of stuff you raised. But I will get back to you on the detail. But I promise you, Ms. Campbell, if you read the entirety of my position, you'll know that I've never waffled on what you're talking about. Never. And, 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 and Kristen, you know my view on the judiciary, the Voting Rights Act, what we have to do to restore it. But we got to have to do it because we got to convince people. Absolute last point. One of the things I'd be concerned about, just as it was pointed out to me that you wanted me to be concerned, Derek, I think it was you said it, about, you know, uh, um, uh, dealing with uh, Vilsack as uh, in, uh, in terms of, a ter of uh, agriculture. Well, first of all, you can learn more about Vilsack's record. But my point is this. I don't think we should make that a big issue going into before January 5th when the election takes place down in, in, uh, um, uh, in uh, Georgia. But I also don't think we should get too far ahead of ourselves on dealing with police reform in that because they've already labeled us as being defund the police. Anything we put forward in terms of the organizational structure to change policing, which I promise you will occur, promise you. Just think to yourself and give me advice whether we should do that before January 5th, because that's how they beat the living hell out of us across the country, saying that we're talking about defunding the police. We're not. We're talking about holding them accountable. We're talking about giving them money to do the right things. We're talking about putting more psychologists and psychiatrists on the telephones when the 911 calls through. We're talking about spending money to enable them to do their jobs better, not more with more force, with less force and more understanding. 
But that's, I just raise it with you to think about. How much do we push between now and January 5th? We need those two seats about police reform. But I guarantee you there will be a full-blown commission. I guarantee you it's a major, major, major element. And as Reverend Al said, I was, I was a pain in the ass to everybody except him when we did the commission before. I didn't think we went far enough. We can go very far. It matters how we do it. I think it matters how we do it. As I learned early on, it's all right to question your opponents, uh, and you're not my opponents, any of you. It's always, always appropriate to question your opponent's judgment. It's never appropriate to question their motive, even if you know it. Because once you question their motive, you're done. You can't get anything done. By the way, let's talk about building highways. By the way, you're in the pocket of the cement industry. Now, what can we do together? Not a chance of getting anything done. So we can be tough, question judgment, not motive to get things done. Anyway, I'm going to yield to my vice president, and uh, she can correct all the mistakes I made. But I want to talk to you. And with your permission, since I may not get you all together, to pick up the phone and call each of you individually over the next several weeks on the stuff each of you raised because I care deeply about what you're talking about. Okay, I know you have to leave soon. Um, Mark, you started the conversation um, expressing what um, the spirit of this conversation as the first of obviously an ongoing conversation and the the president-elect made that commitment just now. I heard him make that commitment. We all did. That this is going to be about access. It's going to be about consistency and, um, and collaboration. But you started saying, we will help you and we will hold you accountable. And that's right. And that's exactly what I think the president-elect has made clear that, that he and I understand is exactly how we should proceed. Um, and uh, I will tell you, having spent, I'm in Delaware right now. I have practically moved to Delaware. <laughs> mm-hmm. COVID. And I Ho- have been- Hotel DuPont is nice. <laughs> yeah, and I have been spending a lot of time with the president-elect, and I will tell you something. Um, I'm in those meetings. He and I have conversations when people are in the room and when nobody is in the room, when the cameras are on and when the cameras are off. I guarantee you, I have no question, nor should anyone, about the values and the principles that he brings to the discussion we've just had today. They are shared values and shared principles. And of course, we need to work out the details on the many points that were raised that are raised in the context of what many have also pointed out and made clear. We didn't just lose ground over these last four years. There was extreme damage that occurred. And so what is in front of us is not only just simply um, making up ground. We, We need to leapfrog because we got, we got pushed behind. So had we not experienced Donald Trump for four years, perhaps we would have made some progress, but we, we are now behind and we lost those years. And so it is going to require a concerted, a purposeful and intentional approach to everything that we have discussed. We cannot afford to be incremental. 
and we have to be strategic and we have to be smart and we have to do it in a way that is, and I know this for speaking to the president-elect many times, that is not about the work that we do as an administration that's about a grand gesture, but instead about work that actually has an impact on the people. And, um, and so I, I appreciate the president-elect making the commitment that he has made for access and, and accountability. And, um, and of course, you should expect no less, but um, it is good to know that that's how we're gonna proceed and that at this early date, even before the inauguration, that this has happened. And um, so let's just come up with a plan. Mm -hmm. and, and a roadmap for how we Mark, you're going to be angry with me. I want to yeah. say one more thing. I am incredibly optimistic. Let me tell you why. I'm incredibly optimistic because society is changing. The Z generation and young millennials are changing. Now, you're not going to maybe agree with what I'm about to say, but take a look at what is happening. 15 years ago, could you turn on the television and see three or four out of seven commercials be biracial commercials? What do you think, guys, huh? What do you think? You want to know where society's going. Watch entertainment. Watch the profit motive. Why are these commercials so many of them biracial? Yes. The yes. young generation is changing. They're demanding more. They don't come with the baggage. Maybe 10, yes. 20, 25% of them are pure racist. Who knows? But the vast majority, the vast majority are not at all where when I was coming up. And the second thing has changed is that you and I have talked about this, Al. Remember what Dr. King said? when Bull Connor turned those hoses on, those black women and sig the dogs on and ripping their clothes off, going in their Sunday go to church vest and rip, ripping the skin off of those kids. He said it was that was supposed to be the wooden stake in the heart of the civil rights movement. Remember what he said? He said that was a most significant thing that happened in terms of freedom. What happened sure. was we got the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act out of that. That young man who stood with a camera, a cell phone, like millions of people have, and stood there for eight minutes and 46 seconds and took a picture of George Floyd asking for his mom, seeing his nose broken against that curb. <clears throat> All of a sudden, what happened? You saw a response around America and around the world. World. The world. Doesn't mean we don't have a big fight to go, but the first thing we had to do, and because of you, we get it done, is get rid of the racist Donald Trump. The first thing. The second thing we got to do is go back and appeal to those folks who some of that, some of that 70 million, not appeal by giving them anything, but appeal by moving hard toward what will benefit them as well. If you notice, Whenever I make those speeches about civil rights and civil liberties and racial equality and economic and economic equality, I make them to white audiences. I make them to white chambers of commerce. I make them to white audiences. 
because I got to remind them, you want your community to look better, make sure black folks can own a house. You want to make sure your community does better, make sure everybody's making 15 bucks an hour minimum. You want to make your community better, make sure everybody's making more money. It's never, 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 never hurt the wealthy. They always do better. But it gives the poor a way up and the middle class a shot. So I just think we have a way. I think the American public have had the blinders taken off with these four apocalypse, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, starting with number one, COVID. Number two, dealing with the economic recession. Number three, with racial equality. And number four, with global warming. All of a sudden they're going, holy God, I didn't know that happened. I didn't know that was the case. I didn't know that. Well, we should well, take Mr. advantage. But well, Mr. President-elect, if I could just say one thing, you are right about where, what has happened with young people. This is Cheryl and Eiffel. But, but this administration, Mr. Trump, even during his last campaign, has also unleashed something else very ugly and very steeped in this country. Yes, there are many people who were moved by what they saw when George Floyd was killed. But we also know that this present president has tapped into a very ugly vein in this country and it's not easy to put it back in the bottle. And so all I'll say is I agree with you 100%. I only wanna say again, just thinking about the need for momentum. And one of the things I love that I've seen so far already with you and the vice president elect is your momentum. Move fast and keep moving. That's what makes the Department of Justice so important and the Attorney General, someone hitting the ground on day one who understands what to do, because we're going to need to move fast so that people can see that we can produce a country that has the kind of unity that you discussed, because there is a well out there of hate and violence well, that we also would, will ignore at our peril. Let me, let me tell you the big mistake I made. I'm, gonna, and I'm in trouble, so much in trouble now, but look. Yeah, you are. You know, um, <laughs> When uh, Barack picked me as his vice president, um, and uh, and you all know I didn't want to do it, not because of Barack. I didn't. I thought vice presidents were just, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, bodies in waiting. You know, if something happened to the president, and I thought I could do more as a senator. But I made the same commitment to Kamala he made to me, first and last person in the room, and I was standing down on the platform. 10 blocks from here, no, now seven blocks where I'm standing right now. In a movie theater, I desegregated when I was a, a senior in high school, the Queen Movie Theater here. That's where we're in right now. And I was waiting, there were over 10,000 people down on the tracks waiting for a black man to come from Philadelphia on a train to pick me up to take me 127 miles to Washington to be sworn in as president and vice president. As I stood there, I walked up to the north end of the platform. There's no reason why any of you would know this. And I looked out over what they call the east side and south bridge. When I got back from law school, I had a job with a, a fancy law firm here, uh, most, you know, the oldest law firm in the state. My state's the only, my city's the only city in American history occupied by the military since, since Reconstruction, since the Civil War, only one. And so after four months of taking the bar and getting ready, I quit because I thought I can't do this. I, and I became a public defender. That's why I went there. So I'm standing there thinking at the time, hadn't dawned on me, waiting for a black man to come pick me up and all these people down there. 
And off to my left, the north, the east side, was completely level. I mean level. After everything was burned down, a level. All you could see was plots for 10 blocks all the way up to Rodney Square. Burned down. And across the Third Street Bridge, which is the river, the Christina River that runs through, same thing. They're built back up now and doing a lot better, still have more to go. So I called my kids up, and my son Bo was alive then, was attorney general. My son Hunter was running the World Food Program USA, and my daughter's a social worker with a master's and works in the east side in criminal justice reform. And I said, you know, just hit me, and I told them what I'd seen. When I used to have to interview my clients down there, when I was a public defender in a holding cell, which was down in the basement of the, of the police station, because so many were being arrested. And I thought it would never be a time when black and whites would get along ever again in Delaware. 60% of my city is black now, and we have the eighth largest black population in America in the state of Delaware. And I thought it would never work. I said, here I am, don't tell me things can't change. Here I am waiting for a black man to take me to be sworn in president and vice president of the United States. But you know what I underestimated? It's a point you're making, Sherilyn. I underestimated. You can never defeat hate. Hate only hides. And it hides mm -hmm. under the rocks. And when you breathe oxygen in, under those rocks, it comes out. But that's why the words of a president matter. It matters that leaders, leaders step up in all communities and condemn prejudice. And I was reminded by a guy that helps me now, John Meacham. He wrote a book about the return of the soul of America. Ku Klux Klan was reinstituted in 1925, four and five. You know why? Not for blacks, but for Irish Catholics like me. Too many Catholics. 30,000 people marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in hoods. Complete regalia, having nothing to do with African-Americans. There's about too many Catholics. We were going to pollute, we're going to pollute the culture of America. And know what it took? It took every single major entity, starting with then a Republican president speaking out against them. There were then 33 members of the House that were members of the Ku Klux Klan seven members of the Senate Ku Klux Klan. But everybody spoke up because a president started it. A president's words matter. And the condemnation has to be swift and consistent. And that's what you're going to see me talking about. You're going to see the vice president talking about, with all of you talk about. But that's why I've organized. You see how many black ministers have supported me? You know, Reverend Al, over 460. Yeah. Got yep. together. But this, guess what? Same way I've been able to put together Catholic priests now, an Episcopal priest, condemning racism. I met, and I'll end with this. I shouldn't have even started it. I got a call from Pope, the Pope, calling me to congratulate me. You know what he said? He said, the most important thing you have to do is deal with racism. Him. He put out an encyclical. Mm which is a big deal in the Catholic Church, about ending racism and dealing on dealing with poverty. 
and he's willing to come and help on that score. That has never happened before. Things are changing around the world. I'm not making the Catholic Church the leader of this, but my point is things are changing. We just got to keep pounding and pounding and pounding and giving people Mr. away. President, Mr. President, uh, while I still have a job and you can't fire me from the one I have, I've been, I'm being told that uh, you're I over. I know. Yeah. And, and so I just wanted to make sure that uh, you know that. And yeah. 10 seconds, Mr. President, uh, we take you up on your offer to meet with you again before January 20th. And we also take you up your, on your offer to meet with you regularly. We like to do it four times a year. We thank you for your time and candor and passion today. Thank and you. by the way, I may not be able to meet thank with you all as one group, but I'll, in the minimum, I'll call all of you and talk to each of the issues you have. Okay. Try to do it as It'll a be group. consistent dialogue. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you, Madam Vice President.